Hey folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. But if you're like me, you probably don't have the time to do that, right? So maybe you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. I take it every day. Sometimes I put it in a shake. Sometimes I put it in my egg white omelet in the morning. Field of Greens can help prevent, treat, and cure cancer? No, but it can powerfully help you audit your next checkup. Your doctor will notice your improved health or you're going to get your money back. Here's the most amazing thing about it. I started using Field of Greens a year ago. My cholesterol is down. My blood sugar is down. My weight's down. My health is up. My sleeping patterns are better. My metabolism is up. If you want to experience what I've experienced, go check out Field of Greens. Jump into the ring here. You're going to get an enormous benefit. And it's so simple. Single scoop, a couple of seconds, healthy lifestyle all day long. Now, thanks to our good friends at Brickhouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. Hello, America, and happy Monday. Hope you're doing really, really well. A really busy day ahead of us. We've got not one, but two great interviews stacked up for you today. Joe Biden, the president, just came back from his Middle East trip. Not a lot of success there. Didn't get Saudi Arabia to pump out more oil. Had an okay, I guess, visit with Israel, expressing some hope and some solidarity with Israel, which sometimes Democrats seem to have a hard time doing. Uh, But we've got the inside story with a man who actually attended one of the meetings there and uh, who has a great grasp on security and uh, strategy in the Middle East. He is the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Ron Dermer. He's going to be joining us. Uh, He's also got a great new podcast. If you haven't checked it out, uh, you should. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it during the interview, but Diplomatically Incorrect, one of the best new podcasts in the space today, uh, really talking about uh, security, diplomacy, uh, the future of the world. Uh, A great one. So check that out when you have a moment. Go to your favorite podcasting platform and check out Diplomatically Incorrect. So we'll kick the day off with an incredible interview with uh, my good friend, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Ron Dermer, and then Michael Chamberlain, uh, the director of the Protect the Public's Trust Watchdog Group. Well, they've got a new lawsuit out today, yep, targeting the Justice Department, targeting conflicts of interest, political biases, potentially affecting investigations, the very important investigations into Hunter Biden and Russia collusion. We've got both of those on tap for you today. Two great interviews. Now, before, we're going to do a quick commercial break and then get kicked right into these interviews because it's so important to get started that way. But I want to mention one story that broke over the weekend that I wrote because I think it's getting a lot of attention. Former President Donald Trump put it out. Uh, it's been on Real Clear Politics. It's gotten a lot of attention. It is the latest compilation I've been able to put together of the 21 confirmed illegalities and irregularities from the 2020 election. These are things that are not in doubt anymore. Now, anyone who talks about the 2020 election, the Democrats and their allies in the mainstream media yell, big lie, big lie, it was perfect, it was secure. It wasn't the most secure in election 
history, uh, election in American history. It wasn't the most perfect election. In fact, it was perfectly imperfect. And what I did is try to put together the 21 irrefutably uh, unchallengeable things that happened that were either illegal or irregular in the election. And I'm real concerned about these sort of developments. They're one of the most important issues in America right now is if we don't trust the ballot we cast in the next election or the election after that, we've lost one of the most quintessential, unique aspects of the American constitutional republic. And so we go through some of them you heard. Of course, there's the big ruling out of Wisconsin that those drop boxes were illegal when they were deployed in 2020. Hundreds of thousands of people voted that way. But there's so many of them from Phoenix to Detroit, Madison, Wisconsin to Austin, Texas, whether it's non-citizens getting onto voting rolls, whether it's uh, the Supreme Court declaring in certain states activities of the state to have been illegal in 2020 related to the way people voted. The truth of the matter is the big lie isn't that the election was anything but perfect. It's that it wasn't perfect. The big lie is that the election was perfect and secure. It was neither secure nor perfect. And uh, this list that I put out, I think, really delves into that. And the question that really comes to mind for me is, will someone rise up? Will someone jump into the void and try to give us a blue ribbon commission that can look at these honestly, effectively, without bias, without political reckoning? Can we simply be able to get the type of honest assessment that says, here are the things we can do to make sure votes are easier to cast, harder to cheat in the next election. Can we make sure that only legislatures set the rules that bureaucrats and courts don't interfere in ways they're not allowed to interfere with under the election? It seems to me time to have a blue ribbon commission, much like the one we did after 9-11, which was so effective, very much unlike the January 6th committee, which hasn't given us anything but partisan garbage. But there's an enormous opportunity because in 2016, Democrats didn't trust the election results. In 2020, Republicans didn't trust the election results. That is a bipartisan problem of epic proportions, and we need to get to the bottom of it. We're not going to reverse the 2020 election. Everybody knows that now. Joe Biden's been in office far too long. It's about making sure that the next elections are not only fair and equitable and lawful, and free from irregularities, but that they also take the sort of tactics that and capabilities and make sure that Democrat, Republican, independent, whatever your point of view is, that you feel confident that the results are accurate and honest and that one vote counted just one time and that people who weren't allowed to vote didn't vote and people who who were allowed to vote got their votes counted. That's not too much to ask. And I think it seems to me it's time for us to try to get back to that level of confidence, something we had many moons ago. This list of 21 very important irregularities and illegalities in the 2020 election, you can take it to the bank. Why? Every document, every fact, every link, every interview that backs up the 21 episodes, they're there. You hit the digging tool, you can get all of them. If you got a friend, say, I don't believe it, go show them the documents. Most of the people that I have showed this story to or these documents to say, oh my God, I had no idea that all those things are confirmed. That's why we do the work that we do here at Just the News and why we're so grateful that you every day are dialing in and using it and spreading it, sharing it and talking about it. Very, very good. 
All right, we're going to give you a lot to talk about today. We're going to take a quick commercial break, uh, hear from our great sponsors, advertisers, and partners. When we come back, first up, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Ron Dermer, great friend, great strategic security thinker. We're going to talk about Iran, Israel, Joe Biden's trip there, the Abraham Accords and the historic change of dynamic that it created in the Middle East at the end of the Trump administration. All that. And then we're going to turn to the issue of ethics in the Justice Department. Are there biases or ethical conflicts that have not been exposed in the Justice Department's investigation of Russia collusion and of its investigation into the Hunter Biden tax and other matters? Those are two great questions worth asking. We're going to get both of them back to back. Michael Chamberlain will be our second guest from the great watchdog group Protect the Public Trust right after this. Hey folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. But if you're like me, you probably don't have the time to do that, right? So maybe you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. I take it every day. Sometimes I put it in a shake. Sometimes I put it in my egg white omelet in the morning. Field of Greens can help prevent, treat, and cure cancer? No, but it can powerfully help you out at your next checkup. Your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Here's the most amazing thing about it. I started using Field of Greens a year ago. My cholesterol is down, my blood sugar is down, my weight's down, my health is up, my sleeping patterns are better, my metabolism is up. If you wanna experience what I've experienced, go check out Field of Greens. Jump into the ring here. You're going to get an enormous benefit. And it's so simple. Single scoop, a couple of seconds, healthy lifestyle all day long. Now, thanks to our good friends at Brickhouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. So excited to have this next guest on. He is the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, one of the most important strategic thinkers in the world, I think, and now the co-host of a great podcast called Diplomatically Incorrect. You got to listen to that. That is a great one. And one other one, just to add to his great resume, he's currently a non-resident fellow of Jew, uh, at the Jewish Institute for National Security of America. He is Ambassador Ron Dermer. Mr. Ambassador, great to have you on the show today. 
Great to be with you, John. But, you know, you set the bar so high for podcasts <laughs> that we really have our work to do. But uh, at least we've got something to aspire to. Oh, you have an amazing your, your take on the world is so important. I, I've, I've always enjoyed it. Uh, tell us a little bit about the podcast. Let's just start there. What uh, what uh, what tempted you to go into the podcasting world? Well, I would speak and travel around and people say, well, you know, it's great that we're listening to you, but you should get thousands of people to hear that message. And I said, okay, great. Well, why don't you figure out how to put me in front of a mic and maybe somebody will sponsor it and we'll kick it off. And guess what? Somebody at one of these lunches that I was at said, okay, we'll do it. And so they sponsored this podcast and we started it, I guess, about four months ago. It's, It's right now every two weeks called Diplomatically Incorrect. And uh, they want to move it to once a week. And, uh, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. You get a loyal listenership. And so you try to build it and make it relevant and topical. So uh, it's exciting to do it. And I do it with my co-host, Mike Makofsky, who is the president of JINSA, the think tank that I'm a non-resident fellow at. Although he once said that I was – I'm supposed to be a non-resident distinguished fellow. And he once mistakenly called me a non-distinguished fellow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there you go. It, it fits the whole diplomatically incorrect. John, there's a lot of non-resident <laughs> fellows in Washington, D.C. There's only one non-distinguished fellow in Washington, D.C., and that's me. I love it. I love when slips of tongues happen like that. Speaking of slips of tongue, we just had a president come back here from America, from the Middle East. I'd love to get your over-under on the uh, the fallout, the, uh, the your take on where things stand in the Middle East after President Joe Biden's visit there. Well, I don't think he moved the needle too much on where things are going in the Middle East is because America has largely disengaged. And that's something that you've seen over successive administrations really reducing their engagement and certainly their military footprint in the region. He started his visit to Israel, which I think is a good thing. I think when an American president comes to Israel and reaffirms the importance of the relationship between the United States and Israel – That's usually a good thing, almost always a good thing, because I think it projects the strength of this alliance that is beyond, you know, one particular administration or even one party. So I thought his visit to Israel actually was pretty good. And I don't compare it to his to to President Trump coming here. I mean, he came early in his administration in May 2017. Actually, he did the reverse in his first trip to the Middle East. You remember, he went first to Saudi Arabia and his first foreign trip as president, which was also rare. Because I think a lot of American presidents made their first trip abroad. I think it was usually to Canada. Maybe some of them went to Europe. But President Trump, I think, in the harbinger of what would come in the future, he went first to Saudi Arabia and then he went to Israel. So Biden's first trip to the Middle East was first to Israel and then Saudi Arabia. And in Israel, I compare his visit to a lot of what happened during the Obama years. And during those years, you will recall, there was a lot of tension And there was constant pressure on Israel to make this or that concession to Palestinians to basically appease Palestinian intransigence. And it was constant. And I think in this case, Biden kind of took a step back from that policy, and he decided to embrace the Israeli public. uh, And the Israeli public pretty much embraced him back. Uh, he had what was one scene, I don't know if it made it to uh, to your television screens there in the United States, where he went to, to Yad Vashem, which is our is a museum that, you know, uh, that memorializes the six million Jews who were murdered in the Holocaust. And he went to Yad Vashem, and at the end of this tour of Yad Vashem, there were two Holocaust survivors who were there. One of them was 86, the other one was 95. And he knelt on one knee and was speaking to them. 
And, you know, for the president of the United States, for the leader of the most powerful person in the world, to kneel on one knee before two Holocaust survivors, that was a very powerful moment for the people of Israel. And I think it spoke to the sympathy in general that he has with Israel. Our issue with President Biden has always been uh, the policies of the Biden administration, not the person. I think the person has, does have a natural sympathy uh, towards Israel. He understands that we're the ally. Um, but unfortunately, the policies, I think, are very problematic, particularly with Iran. And I don't think that that changed. Now, after coming to Israel, he then flew to Saudi Arabia. And what I was disappointed about is, is the reason why he's going to Saudi Arabia. Because the reason is he's going to get them to pump more oil. And there is obviously a problem with the price of uh, gas, oil in the world. But the answer to that is probably uh, in the plains or hills of North Dakota and South Dakota and other places in the United States of America to drill and to make America energy independent, which I think one is, was one of the great things uh, that President Trump had done. So I don't think they have to go to Saudi Arabia for that because the answer is in their backyard. And I think they're going for the wrong reason. There is a great reason to go to Saudi Arabia, and that's to try to bring a peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia to try to expand the Abraham Accords, which was so important that the Trump administration did, where we had four peace agreements in five months. And just to remind your listeners, 72 years, Israel got two peace agreements with Arab countries. And then in five months, in 2020, we got four peace agreements. And rather than continuing that and understanding why that happened, how that happened, how to expand it, instead this trip was made largely because of the price of gas in the United States. And as I say, the answer to that is elsewhere. Yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable. And, and they spent a lot of time talking about Khashoggi. There was, uh, it, it seemed like the back end of the trip kind of missed a lot of its opportunity. When you, you I guess you were in one of the meetings uh, uh, between the president and former prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. What did you see? What do you see in President Joe Biden in that behind the scenes? Well, he wasn't the caricature that he's often made to be in the media of somebody who's not in, you know, doesn't know what he's doing or not in command. I mean, he was sharp. Uh, they had a conversation, the prime minister and, and Netanyahu and Biden, who know each other for about 40 years. And, you know, they've disagreed and they disagree on some pretty big issues. But there's always been a personal friendship between them and they had a very good conversation. And I found him to be to be very much in command. Uh, and he was actually thinking strategically about issues in a way that I hadn't even heard him think that way or, or, or seen that level of strategic um, thinking when he was vice president about Russia, about China, about America's you know place in the world. And maybe it's because he's the president now and not the vice president. But I certainly did not see the picture that is sometimes presented uh, on TV. He was he was very much in command, very engaged in the conversation. And the disagreement is a policy disagreement. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. Uh, and I think that's right. I, th I, you know, when I talk to people in the White House, people want to say, oh, someone's secretly running the White House. No, it's not. The president is firmly in control. His stuttering and other things aside, uh, he's firmly in control. And I think that it's interesting to see that observation when he's overseas as well. Um, Iran is a big, big issue. And over the weekend, there was a senior official quoted, I think, by Reuters and the AP saying that uh, Iran has the capability to turn on the nuclear bomb now. They just haven't done it. Um, your thoughts on that? And what does it say about the state of the negotiations if Iran is already beyond the point of approach? Well, first of all, it's interesting that an advisor to Khamenei, 
the supreme leader of Iran, you know, John, you don't get called the supreme leader for nothing. That's the guy who's in charge when you're called the supreme leader. <laughs> That's right. And for many years, the line was, you know, the Iranians are never going to make a decision for nuclear weapons because there's some fatwa, which apparently no one has found. It's probably hidden in a warehouse somewhere right. in Cleveland. But there's this supposed fatwa that prevents them on religious grounds from developing nuclear weapons, which is, of course, an absurdity. And now this person says that they have the ability to make nuclear weapons. I'm not so sure. I'm not sure that that's true. I think it may be a way for them to deter um, other people from taking action against them. Hey, we've already crossed the line. Or for them to squeeze out um, more juice in the negotiations because people are not going to be desperate. Because some of your listeners, and I know it's it's a smart group, know like to make a nuclear weapon, you usually need three elements. You need the fissile material for the weapon. You need a delivery system. So in the case of nuclear weapons, what carries nuclear payloads are intercontinental ballistic missiles. And the third thing you need is to weaponize it. And Iran has advanced greatly in terms of the fissile material. They enriched to 3.5%. They crossed that line. They go to 20%. They've crossed that. Now they're at 60%. So 90% is the level that you need military-grade nuclear material. On the ICBM program, they're racing ahead, and the nuclear deal... this terrible nuclear deal that was done in 2015, it really allows them to continue with their uh, missile program uh, unfettered from 2023. So Iran, they were violating a UN UN Security Council resolution in advancing their uh, missile program. Now they won't even violate it in about a year. But the third element is the one that I think there's a question mark, is how advanced is their weaponization, which is a clear violation of NPT, of the deal, of everything else. It's, it's much bigger than the deal. It's the NPT itself. But we don't exactly know where they are. I think most intelligence estimates say they're maybe a year and a half to two years away. The problem with weaponization, John, is that you can try to do that and work on that process in a room that is the size of double the size of your office uh, in a country that is a third the size of Europe. And then to assume that our intel is going to catch them is a big assumption to make. You know, we did not know, our our intelligence agencies did not know for a very long time about the work Iran was doing at Natanz, which is one of their enrichment sites. We also did not know for a very long time about the work they were doing in Qom, where they built a facility, an enrichment facility in the side of a mountain. Of course, because they're doing peaceful, you know, civilian research is why they have to build the right. enrichment facilities <laughs> underneath the yes. mountain. And, and so why they're developing ICBMs is to, of course, launch medical isotopes into outer space. And if you don't believe that, I got some bridges to, to sell you. But the weaponization that thing, what I'll tell you is we don't know for sure. What we do know is we captured the nuclear archive. You remember in that tremendously daring operation in uh, 2018. And Netanyahu revealed the details, um, or the findings, I should say, of what we got from that facility uh, in this warehouse in the heart of Tehran. And they were much more advanced than the world believed at that, to- at that time. So we don't know exactly where they are in weaponization. I don't think that they have the capacity to build a nuclear weapon today. But I think if the world does nothing about it, they will soon have that capacity to do it tomorrow. And one final point. The problem with the nuclear deal that was signed in 2015 that the Biden administration is desperate to go back into is Iran can get to a nuclear weapon by keeping the deal. 
they don't even need to violate it because all of the restrictions that that deal puts in place on Iran's nuclear program, those restrictions are automatically removed in a few years. And when it was signed in 2015, we were talking about restrictions that would be removed in 10 to 15 years. Well, now you're in 2022. Now you're talking about restrictions that are going to be removed between three and eight years. So what's the point of going back into a deal that two, three years from now, all these restrictions will begin to be removed, and then Iran won't need to break into the nuclear club They'll just or sneak in. They'll just walk in. That's the problem with the deal, and that's why they shouldn't go back into it. Uh, and, you know, Israel, I'd say across its political spectrum, have encouraged the United States not to go back uh, into the deal. Netanyahu spoke in Congress, as you recall, in 2015. The current prime minister of Israel, Lapid, spoke publicly saying, uh, you know, we need to have a credible military threat on this regime. Uh, and, and it would just be a big mistake to go back into this uh, into this nuclear agreement. The right policy is to have a credible threat, crippling sanctions, and also, frankly, to reach out to the people of Iran, who are America's allies and Israel's allies and who hate this regime. Yeah, such an important... I don't think a lot of people understand uh, that the deal really doesn't stop Iran. It just delays it a few years, and uh, their history of compliance, even when they had deals, isn't very good. And so it really is a deal without any real potential bringing much value. Do you think that message got through to the president? The Israelis are so united across political parties, across political spectrums. Do you think that message got through when he was there? I don't, because I, I don't think they want to listen to that message. I don't believe the policy of the Biden administration is to prevent, and I say this with sadness, I do not believe the policy of the Biden administration is to prevent uh, a nuclear-armed Iran. I think it is to contain a nuclear-armed Iran. And you have to ask yourself one question. If you only have two choices, that's all you have. You're trying a diplomatic solution. You're trying to do everything you can. But at the end of the day, you only have two choices. Either Iran gets nuclear weapons or you take military action to stop them. If those are the only two choices, which door do you go through? And I think the Biden administration will say nuclear weapons. Why? Not because they want them to have it, because they have convinced themselves that by taking action, military action, you'll maybe delay it for a year, for two years, but Iran has the knowledge, uh, and Iran has the ability to reconstitute its program, and then you're going to get them having nuclear weapons in two years or three years anyway, so why actually go and confront them militarily. That's the way they think about the problem. Now, Israel thinks about the problem differently. We think a military confrontation is a very bad outcome because we're the ones who are going to pay the price. And we'll pay the price not just with what Iran will try to do to us, but through their proxy, in particular Hezbollah. And Hezbollah is in Lebanon, which is to the north of Israel. They have over 100,000 rockets pointing at us. Many of them are incredibly lethal and they would unleash Hezbollah against us. So a military confrontation, whether that would be led by the United States or by Israel, could have huge blowback for Israel. They don't have weapons right now to hit the United States, but they do have a lot of weapons to hit Israel. We think that's a bad option. But you know what's a worse option? To give a regime that calls and works for your destruction, that it openly declares that they are going to destroy you and you know wipe you from the map to let that regime have nuclear weapons. So we have to prepare for that scenario. I just don't think, I think that Biden and his administration have a policy of containing it. Look, they're going to get it, so maybe we can delay it for a few years, and that's the best that, uh, that can be done. And I'll, I'll say two things 
uh, we could talk a little longer about these issues because it's a podcast. But you can't say this in a soundbite on television, but I'll say two things about that. The first is I used to tell the people in the Obama administration who tell me, hey, they have the knowledge and you can't put that in a bottle. You can't put that genie back in the bottle once they have the knowledge of how to do it. And I said, well, why don't you try to take the top 100 nuclear scientists in the United States and put them on an island and see uh, if they can spin uranium from nothing. See if they can figure that out. Because without the fissile material, right. it doesn't matter. The knowledge is useless. Yeah. Totally useless. It's having the, the infrastructure, the nuclear infrastructure, which is why the deal was so bad, because it leaves them with the nuclear infrastructure. It doesn't remove it. What happened in Libya, if you recall, in 2003, is the infrastructure of their weapons of mass destruction was removed. And that's the guarantee that you have. I mean, they could always try to violate it, but it takes a long time to build this infrastructure, to simply tell the Iranians, you know, keep the infrastructure, mothball it for a few years, work on, you know, R&D on more and more advanced centrifuges to enrich uranium, uh, and then, you know, we'll somehow work this out in the future. That's an absurdity. So I would tell them this whole idea that they have the knowledge uh, is a huge mistake. But the second thing I would tell them is when Menachem Begin, who was Israel's prime minister in 1981, made the decision to launch a strike against the nuclear reactor in uh, Osirak, which is in Iraq. When he made that decision, our intel told him that it would likely delay the program for two years. And so we're now 41 years and counting since that decision. Imagine a world where, uh, you know, Saddam uh, or some regime there has nuclear weapons. Israel also uh, took action to take out the nuclear reactor that was in Syria. Imagine Assad having nuclear weapons. So thus far in, in the history of the nuclear age, which is now 75 years and 77 years and counting, um, Israel has taken out two nuclear programs. And it's Israel two, the rest of the world zero. And unfortunately, I don't see that the United States is going to take care of this situation in Iran for us. So it comes down to really one of two choices. Either we're going to have to take action or the people of Iran are going to rise up and throw out these, this regime that they despise. Uh, and we should be preparing for both uh, scenarios and you know, preparing ourselves militarily should we have to take action uh, in that terrible circumstance and also supporting those people in Iran. Just like Reagan supported those behind the Iron Curtain, that was a key to his uh, successful strategy of winning the Cold War without firing a shot. Almost none of that happens in Iran. And they're protesting all over the country, and they get almost no support from the outside world. Yeah, they don't get media coverage. They don't get a, a statement of support from the uh, administration. It's it's just remarkable. Um, at this point, if you had to guess the odds that Israel will take action on its own, go solo and make it 3-0 and in its record, uh, are those odds have clearly gone up? What do, you, what do you think the chances are that this happens in the next couple of years? Well, I think they've definitely gone up. I think signing the, the the deal, if a deal is made, they go up very, very high because it means, again, that they're on cruise control um, over a cliff. And the cliff is that Iran is going to get nuclear weapons. It's just going to be year 12 or year 13 after the deal begins. So the deal, the deal makes the chances of a war much higher. I think right now the chances of war between Israel and Iran are much higher than they were before because Iran is getting closer and closer. The only way that we can prevent a war, and this is maybe counterintuitive to people, but it shouldn't be. As the Romans said, if you want peace, prepare for war. You must have a credible military threat. 
if you have a credible military threat, the chances of war with Iran will actually go down. If you don't have a credible military threat, they go up. And I know that not just from going to ancient history. We can look at recent history when it comes to Iran. What stopped their nuclear program? There were three times where military threats stopped Iran's nuclear program. The first was in 2003. I mentioned Libya. After Saddam was pulled out of that spider hole, so Libya got out of their weapons of mass destruction program. And the other impact was in Iran, where Iran, Iran's leaders thought that they could be next. Afghanistan was the first. Iraq was the second. They thought that the Bush administration would go and take care of their program. And Bush had put them, as you remember, in the axis of evil. So from 2003, for about a year, Iran stopped its nuclear program cold. And then when it realized there wasn't going to be a military confrontation with the United States, they advanced their program. The second time, you may recall when Prime Minister Netanyahu went to the United Nations in 2012, and he put this red line on what looked like a wily coyote bomb at the United Nations. Well, when he did that, Iran, that was getting closer and closer to crossing that line, stopped. And then instead of trying to sort of rush ahead to a bomb and to have the high-grade fissile material for the bomb, they started stockpiling low-enriched uranium, essentially moving horizontally under the line rather than crossing it. And the third time, and this is something that people don't know, which I think is critically important. Iran, you remember Trump pulled out of the deal in 2018. And Iran advanced its nuclear program once he pulled out by baby steps. Now, I think the decision of Trump to pull out of the deal was the single most important decision for American national security and for Israel's national security that he did that. Because, as I said, the, the deal is a glide path to a nuclear arsenal and gives these killers who lead millions of people in chance of death to America, gives them hundreds of billions of dollars to kill your troops, to, to attack Israel, to attack your Arab allies. So I was 100% in favor of that. What did Iran do after it? They started to take baby steps with their nuclear program, always testing the environment to see if there was going to be some pushback from the United States. And they advanced their nuclear program for about a year and a half. And then with baby steps, no huge steps, they didn't cross certain lines, high enriched uranium, but they did little things that they were advancing it to show, hey, the United States is leaving this deal, so we're going to advance the program so that they can get all their friends in Washington who make their arguments and say, hey, Trump did his terrible thing. They were in a box. Uh, and, you know, the, the nuclear deal was working and all of this nonsense. And they were doing these baby steps. And then came January 2nd, 2020. On that day, Qasem Soleimani was taken out. The greatest terrorist and the person with more blood on his hands, certainly American blood on his hands, than any other person, obviously, since Osama bin Laden was taken out. Now, from January 2nd, 2020, this is a fact, until November 6, 2020, the date of your elections, I think it was November 6, for those 10 months, Iran's nuclear program did not advance one iota. It was, yes. Really? That's fascinating. And I'll make sure, you know, I'll send it to you so you can put it up for your, for your listeners. Actually, Jinsa... Uh, the think tank that I'm a non-distinguished fellow at, uh, they did a study on this. So they did do things regionally. They continued their attacks in the region, you know, Yemen and Syria and Iraq and Lebanon and all sorts of mischief that they do in the region. But their nuclear program, they stopped. Why? Because from January 2nd, 2020, the United States had a credible military threat on that regime. Before that, even the Trump administration that had a very strong policy vis-a-vis -vis Iran, 
it didn't have a credible military threat. You remember six months before that in mid-2019 when a drone was taken down, an American drone? Right. And you remember Trump didn't respond to it? And what that projected was huge weakness? But then all of a sudden, Soleimani was taken out, and for 10 months, they froze. The impact of the Soleimani strike lasted about as long, and maybe even longer, had Trump won re-election. But it lasted as long as the, the defeat of Saddam Hussein. It had a year effect on that regime. The second Biden got elected, then they didn't take baby steps. They started to leap forward. And they've been met with no response whatsoever. And because of what happened in Afghanistan, any shred of credibility that there was left of a potential American military action has, you know, has gone down the drain. And this is why you have the policy right now. You don't have a credible military threat against Iran. They don't believe that you're going to take action. Sanctions are not being enforced. The Chinese are buying everything that Iran can pump out of the ground. So you have a safety net for them, an economic safety net. And so they say to themselves, why should we go back into a deal? Even if it's a good deal for us, maybe we can get a better deal. Maybe we'll squeeze more out of them. Or, and this could be even more dangerous, Iran may say, let's break out to the bomb now. When we have an administration in Washington or a government in Jerusalem who they think is not prepared to act. And they think once they explode a nuclear device, then they'll be immortal like that, that anthill society in North Korea, which seems to be immortal because they've developed nuclear weapons. So we should all be very, very concerned about this turn of events. And unfortunately, I don't see the U.S. administration recognizing this reality or at least being prepared to deal with it. My hope and faith will be that uh, Israel, as it did in the past, will do whatever it has to do to protect itself against this this very, very dangerous regime. Yeah, and I think history is getting closer to that decision-making moment. Uh, another important thing in Israel, uh, the fifth election, I believe, in four years, or actually the fourth election in five years, I think it is, but you have had a lot of instability. Is this the election where we see a clear-cut mandate for a government, and is Benjamin Netanyahu likely to be back in power? Well, let's hope so for both of those uh, answers. It is, you were right the first time, it's the fifth round in about three and a half years. And, you know, we're not, uh, John, we're not Holland, where the biggest issues are probably smog downtown and, you know, parking. Uh, we got serious issues, and to have these deal with these serious strategic challenges, security challenges, to deal with those issues when you have a totally unstable political system, uh, and dysfunctional one in Israel is very, very hard to do. So we, we had several rounds, um, and there's hope now that in this round that maybe Netanyahu will win a decisive victory. The latest polls in Israel show him crossing that magic 61 threshold. We have a 120-seat parliament, so you need 61 to have a, a, a government. I think if Netanyahu gets the 61, then he'll be able to form a broader coalition with other parties. It's very confusing for Americans to see Israel's system. First of all, we're a parliamentary system. That's one confusion. But the second confusion is we, don't, we have a, a, an electoral system of proportional representation. So when Israelis go to the polls, they, they don't vote for an individual. We don't have individual districts. What we have is a national vote. And you're voting for a party, not a person. And all the parties, you know, run. And depending on their share of the national vote, that's the share of seats that they have in our parliament. They have to cross a minimal threshold of only three and a quarter percent. 
But beyond that, if you get 10% of the national vote, you'll get 10% of our seats in our parliament. There's a 120-seat parliament, so if you get 10%, you get 12 seats, usually a little bit more because sometimes there are parties that don't cross that threshold. So it's very hard. There's never been a party in Israel that has had a majority, a clear majority. And because we, we don't have what you call the first-past-the-post system in the United States, where you have individual districts and the two parties compete there, and usually you have one winner – uh, of those two parties, you, that's what lends itself to these two parties. In Israel, we've got 12, 14 parties. And it's not because we're more diverse in the United States. It's because of this crazy electoral system. If you adopt it, and if one thing your listeners will take away from this podcast is don't adapt Israel's political system. If you think your system is dysfunctional with two parties, try 12. <laughs> try 12. Try okay? 12, exactly. What, but what, what would happen, imagine, Jonathan, in the United States, you had our system, proportional representation. If you got three and a quarter percent of the national vote, you would get seats in your Congress. So now think about how many parties would be able to cross that threshold. You would probably have a right and a left, but you would, you could You'd probably have right now for sure a pro-life party, a pro-choice party. You might have an immigrant party. You might have an anti-immigrant. You might have a Hispanic American or an African American or whatever. You might have so many different parties. And then now try governing where you don't have an elected president who holds a lot of power in your system with all its checks and balances. But now you have to cobble together a coalition from, from this disparate you know, a, a body politic with 12, 13 different parties. And that's the situation Israel has. It's great for representation, but it's very, very bad for governance. And the hope now would be, I think Netanyahu is very close to being able to get to that magic 61 number, and then hopefully he'll be able to establish a, uh, a broad government in Israel. Uh, and we have not had that for three or four years. And I think it's been very unfortunate. For instance, just as a historic note, uh, because Biden went to Saudi Arabia after he came to Israel, as we discussed, Israel's first round was in April 2019, and Netanyahu then won a clear victory. But one of these satellite parties that essentially said they were going to form a coalition with Netanyahu sort of abandoned him at the last minute and went over to the other side. And that's what started this political instability. But what people don't know is the Abraham Accords was really supposed to start in 2019. Um, but because of that failure to form a government, it got postponed a year, and we lost that precious year. Because I think had we been able to have those peace agreements, the Abraham Accords, which were the peace between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, Israel and Bahrain, and then Israel and Sudan, and Israel and Morocco, those four peace agreements, if we were able to get those in 2019, I think it's possible that down the stretch in 2020 – uh, that we might have gotten an Israeli-Saudi peace, uh, particularly under Trump's leadership, who had done so much to not actually rupture the relations with Saudi Arabia after the Khashoggi incident. And there was tremendous goodwill there. And I think it might have been possible to get this Israeli-Saudi peace, which would be a huge deal. It would be effectively the end of the Israeli-Arab conflict, not the end of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but the end of the Israeli-Arab conflict that's been going on for a century and so we just got to get back to that path. And having a strong and stable government in Israel to deal with peace with Saudi Arabia, to deal with confronting Iran, of course, to deal with the economic challenges that we have, like you have there in the United States with inflation and everything else that everybody's dealing with, uh, I think that's very, very important for Israel at this, uh, at this very fateful time. 
And it seems like these are the issues that are driving this election. I, obviously, uh, the economy is affecting everyone, but it seems like security, uh, peace, the potential for peace, those are the issues that are driving this and why the uh, polls so significantly seem to favor uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Is that right? Uh, am I understanding that right, Mr. Ambassador? Well, I would say, well, security is always a big issue with Israel, but you know, Netanyahu historically has been a bit the victim of his success. Because I remember it, this was before. I mean, I've been I worked with him and known him for 22 years, but I was did not know him in his first term as prime minister. And in '96, he became prime minister for the first time, and he had a three-year run as prime minister. Then he came back a decade later in 2009 and had a 12-year run. Altogether, 15 years as prime minister, a di- a separate two and a half years as finance minister. So. And he's the longest-serving prime minister ever, He longer than Ben-Gurion that served about 13 years. So he's had a huge impact on the country. But in 96, he took over a country in the mid-90s, you remember, which you had buses blowing up. And a lot of the security was the number one issue by far. It was like 65% of people said security and terrorism was their top issue. He took over the country, and in three years, there were only three terrorist attacks. And so he had essentially restored security. And by restoring security, these other issues, you know, came to the fore. And people forgot, you know, what the policies that had been effective in dealing with security. And then they elected Ehud Barak, and Ehud Barak went to Camp David and made these sweeping concessions to the Palestinians that they not only rejected, but then you had a terror war. Uh, and Israel, it took a long time for us to get back to that level of security. In the 12 years that Netanyahu was prime minister from 2009 to 2021, he kept the country safe, its safest period, with all of its difficulties and challenge in a couple rounds in Gaza. Uh, the number of people who died in that 12-year period, it's the smallest in the history of the state. And he also kept Israel prosperous because one of the things that he did was liberate Israel's economy and really enable it to become the startup and innovation nation that we are. So he freed markets, interesting idea, right? Capitalism works, especially competitive capitalism. Uh, And he was also able to achieve peace with four Arab countries. So all of his predecessors combined had two peace agreements to their name, and he has four. So I think he did a pretty good job, but you know what happens sometimes is, uh, is people sort of take certain things for granted. And what has happened in Israel the last year when he was out of power, when a coalition was formed that really didn't have anything that connected it together. You had a coalition of left. You had a coalition of people who claimed they were right and then went with the left into the government. It's kind of like in American terms, it's like Ted Cruz deciding to join a government with Elon Omar. Okay, So you had left, right, and, and also an Islamist party, This all of this concoction that the only glue that seemed to hang it together was that to hold it together was that they were not Netanyahu, right? They were anti-Netanyahu. But what happened then is the country saw what life is like without him being prime minister. And it wasn't something that they liked. And he has grown almost from the day the government was established. He has risen in the polls. And his, you know, his numbers keep going up and up. And in the last year, he spent, I think, uh, most of the time writing a book. So maybe you'll be reading about uh, his autobiography and his life uh, uh, in a few months. And that's what that one-year respite did. But I hope, as somebody who's worked with him for over 20 years, I hope that he will get the Israeli people will give him another opportunity um, to lead the country. I think he 
has done a tremendous job as prime minister keeping Israel safe and prosperous and advancing peace, because I think what we need to deal with now is obviously deal with our economic situation, and I should say that's the number one issue for Israel. The cost of living and inflation in Israel is very high, maybe not as high as it is in the United States, but it's quite high and it's concerning to a lot of people. So number one is to is to deal with that immediate issue, but in a larger sense, to deal with the great security challenge we face, which is Iran's uh, ambitions and feverish pursuit of nuclear weapons, uh, and to expand the Abraham Accords to include Saudi Arabia. Those are achievable goals, and I think in the next term, he can get our economy back on track, he can have a peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia, and I think he can thwart and hopefully take action that once and for all will prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons. Yeah, such an important mission ahead and such important history on the on the cusp of uh, breaking out. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, it is always an honor to have you on the show. I really appreciate it. Folks, go check out the great podcast, Diplomatically Incorrect. If you love what you heard today, you get to hear that every couple of weeks. Uh, what a great opportunity. Glad, glad to have you on. Can't wait to have you back on soon. We just, we just for every 10 listeners to the John Solomon podcast, we just want <laughs> one. One out of 10. That's all we're asking for, all 10%. Right. You know, in the Bible, you used to give up 10%, you know, of your, of your income. Right. So we're just, tithing. we're going to start tithing <laughs> your podcast. That's our goal with Diplomatically Incorrect. All right, folks, let's make it happen because it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing podcast. And as you learned today, an amazing, great security mind and uh, diplomatic mind. Mr. Ambassador, thank you so much for your time today. Great to be with you. You as well. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Michael Chamberlain, the director of the Protect the Public's Interest, the watchdog group that's doing so much in the transparency and ethics space, he's going to join us to talk about their brand new lawsuit right after this. All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote. It's about elevating your voice, making your voice be heard. AMAC is more than just a senior discount organization. They unite like-minded patriots like you and I, committed to preserving our cherished values and actively opposing the leftist agenda that's sweeping across America. Just look at their recent victories. AMAC members helped to push forward an investigation into practices that inflate drug prices. They successfully defeated ranked choice voting in order to protect traditional voting methods, and they've also helped block a federal takeover of elections. As AMAC's membership grows, Washington is listening. Every new member strengthens this movement. If you love America, visit AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Just News to become a four-year member for just $30. That's a great discount. AMAC is not only better for America, it's better for you. Membership gives you access to the AMAC magazine, free Social Security and Medicare guidance, money-saving discounts, trusted news, sweepstakes, and so much more. It's a community, not a service. Take advantage of our election year sale, four years for just $30 at AMAC. By joining over 2 million Americans, they can't ignore your voice in Washington anymore. Join now at AMAC, AMAC.us slash just news. That's AMAC.us forward slash just news. Hey folks, if you're a homeowner and you're like me, you want to protect your home, right? But when's the last time you checked on the title to your home? If you never have, listen to this. A new report on homeowners shows we all now have $16 trillion in equity. That's an all-time high in America. That's why you need protection from a scam the FBI calls house stealing. That's when the equity in all of our homes is the target, sadly, of scammers. If nobody's watching the title to your home, these scammers can transfer your title to their name, take out loans, and your equity could be gone. Poof, gone. 
You have to protect your equity from this despicable crime right now with triple lock protection from my good friends at HomeTitleLock.com. The first step is to check on your home's title to see if it's still in your name. Sign up with your address at HomeTitleLock.com and be sure to use the promo code JUSTNEWS. They're going to send you a complete title scan of your home's title and your first 30 days of triple lock home title protection. That's legendary protection, by the way. It's free. HomeTitleLock.com. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS. One more time. Go to HomeTitleLock.com today and protect your most important asset, the equity in your home. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. Uh, earlier today, if you were on Just the News, you probably saw this uh, story uh, trending. A very important transparency lawsuit filed against uh, the U.S. government, the Justice Department, trying to find out the ethical conflicts and the biases of key prosecutors, investigators in both the Hunter Biden case, the Russia collusion case. Uh, the man and, and his group who made that possible is a, uh, a regular guest on here. Always got to have Michael Chamberlain on. Of course, uh, from the great group Protect the Public's Trust. Michael, great to have you back on the show. Oh, it's great to be here, John. Thank you very much for having me. These are such important lawsuits, and I, I don't think people understand, first off, how much the uh, government tries to avoid d- disclosing information, particularly when it comes to conflicts of interest or uh, biases. You're going right at this, right at the Justice Department. Tell us a little bit about uh, the battle that underlies this and why it's so important to the public's trust. Well, instances like these, John, they, they're when transparency is, is so important, or rather when the lack of transparency can be so damaging to the public's trust. So there are certain officials within the, the Biden administration who've joined the, the Department of Justice. Uh, there's Susan Hennessy. She was appointed general counsel in the National Security Division at DOJ. And prior to her joining the administration, she'd made disparaging comments about the Durham, Durham investigation, uh, even though it, it revealed abuse of government at the highest levels of government and the government surveillance system to, to target political operatives. And she dismissed it as partisan silliness. But now she's it, the head of the National Security Division at DOJ. Uh, another official, Nicholas McQuaid, he's in the principal deputy assistant uh, attorney general in the criminal division at DOJ. And prior to joining DOJ, one of his former colleagues with whom McQuaid had worked on at least one case together uh, was named to as one of the representatives of Hunter Biden. Right. So you have ties of these officials to these very high profile cases that could possibly fall under their portfolios. So and even not knowing about any of these particular instances uh, a year or so ago, more than a year ago, back in June, we had sent. Freedom of Information Act requests to uh, all, nearly two dozen agencies, including DOJ, asking for ethics waivers that they had granted to work on issues that they have otherwise may have been prohibited from, whether it may have involved a former client or the spouse's employer, a former employer, whatever would have been they'd been barred from participating in right. because of their their former former alliances or former employment, uh, former relationships. We essentially have received no information from DOJ about any of the information that we requested. Uh, In fact, when we originally sent the request, DOJ claimed that they 
had responded to us and just with an acknowledgement that they'd received the FOIA request, but it turns out they sent it to the wrong email address, so the wrong domain. So we, we never even received that, we, and we didn't even find out about it until much later when we followed up with DOJ to request the information. So Unreal. this is something that, that we've run into with some certain agencies, and the, the lack of transparency is very troubling. But even within his own agency, we're running into these stone walls. It's just unbelievable. It's very, very troubling to think that um, issues like this, which really go to the public's trust, right? Can we trust the Justice Department? You would think that they would care enough to say, well, uh, we want to clear this up for the American public. Hey, we, we don't have a problem here. You can trust us. And they don't. It is absolutely stunning to, to see the, um, the lack of concern that the uh, that these bureaucrats these institutions have about the public being able to trust their decision making uh what is the next step obviously this will get before a judge and and i guess the justice department will get their chance to to uh, respond but uh it, this is probably a what a three to six month process right sometimes they can take that john we've had some that that are resolved sooner than that but generally the the process takes a while but hopefully that this the system will work properly and we've gone to the court and we'll be able to get the documents that the american public deserves to have and get the information that they deserve to know and was it possible that these officials weren't working on these cases and they didn't receive waivers well that's possible but we don't know that they're not giving us the information to be able to even clear themselves to to alleviate any concerns that people might have about these types of relationships. Yeah, it's just stunning. It really is stunning. And, and uh, uh, getting these answers are such an important part of uh, informing the American public. That's why what you do at Protect the Public's Trust is so important, Michael. We we covered a lot here at Justice, uh, Just the News because this is really important things. There used to be a lot of watchdogs that cared about this today. So few do. And yet the importance of the, of the issues are there. You've got another one that I have, uh, we've covered and have been keeping close tabs on. This one against the National Institutes of, uh, National Institute of Health and specifically NIAD, the, um, the division that um, Dr. Anthony Fauci oversees. Your thoughts uh, on what's going on there? Why is this so important? I know you're following up on some uh, good work also that the White, Coast, White Coat Waste Project has done, but uh, why is this uh, lawsuit so important? Well, it, it goes to the core of, of government transparency and what the, the public is actually having a say in what's happening in these agencies. And, uh, specifically, our case revolves around uh, an experiment or a research project that the White Coast Waste Project had exposed earlier and, and members of Congress had come out and uh, condemned calling it cruel and a reprehensible use of misuse of taxpayer funds. And I, I, people may have heard about that they were, the, the researchers were doing experiments on beagles. And in some cases, they were allowing them to essentially be eaten alive by insects. And so they were this organization had claimed that they had received funding from NIH for this project. After the backlash from the congressional representatives and, and letters, the group took down the, they changed or, 
or clarified, uh, corrected the the funding announcement that they had had on their website and said that, in fact, they didn't receive any money from NIH and they weren't involved. But uh, it just seems as though there's more that the public needs to know about this. And so we sent a Freedom of Information Act request last year to try to get more information about it. And again, we ran into the same issues with them not providing documents, not complying with their legal obligations under the Freedom of Information Act. And so we filed a lawsuit in this case, too, to get the information that we believe that the, the public needs to know. And this is emblematic of the loss of trust in public health officials in this country over the last few years. And it's really sad. Uh, public health officials, trust is the number one commodity that they have. And if they're squandering the trust, if they're not leveling with the American public, if they're not providing the information, if if they're not complying with the obligations that they have to be truthful and honest and accurately represent what's happening, uh, the public trust in those agencies and, and in those officials is is eroded and that can have some very severe consequences if people don't trust medical professionals in their day-to-day -day lives uh, there's a, a lot of danger in that john yeah no absolutely and we this issue is uh, extends to much uh, bigger and larger things like we were having difficulty getting the same transparency over uh the research that was done in china uh, ahead of on coronaviruses ahead of the a pandemic that broke out. So this is an agency that doesn't seem to like to uh, to be transparent with us, even though it's doing some of the most important uh, medical work in the world. And so another really, really important one. You had another one that caught my attention because I think it goes to the idea of the intransigence and the growing concern uh, that bureaucrats don't want to give the American people information that they're entitled to. I mean, it's our government. We, the people, own this government. Um, there was a decision I, I saw on your Twitter feed that the DEA is no longer going to accept FOIAs by email. I guess uh, the most common way that we normally would send a FOIA, DEA doesn't want to um, uh, accept it that way. Your thoughts on that, um, that pretty remarkable uh, decision? It's a pretty puzzling development, John, because if if in fact the the purpose of FOIA is to make information accessible and easily accessible to the American public, which after all, the foundation of our government is the public, the, the American people have a say in how they're governed and the government is supposed to be open and transparent. It just seems that an, another roadblock that they're putting in the way of getting to the information that they deserve to have. Uh, email is, the easiest method by which agencies or which individuals and organizations that want to provide information to the public can can send Freedom of Information Act requests. And if they're shutting that down, they're just making it more difficult. And it's like I say, John, it's a really puzzling development. It really is. And, and um, uh, we live in an era where we seem to be blessed by digital expediency, digital access and yet it seems like the government is going in the opposite direction one more time go figure that one out uh michael how do f people follow the great work that you do at protect the public trust what's the best way to stay in touch well, they can follow us on our website or uh, protect 
trust.org and there they can go to our subscribe page and subscribe for our to our email updates we send press releases regularly on on stories such as this and a lot of things that a lot of them you've covered john over at just the news and we appreciate that and they can go to just the news every day and a lot of times our our there's a story about the work that we're doing and and whenever you have me on here so we appreciate the the work that you guys do as well we're honored in the partnership to be able to cover these important issues transparency really matters it's one of the antiseptics that our founding fathers intended for a large government and um uh today it seems as though uh, most Federal agencies uh, resist any form of transparency. We're just so grateful you're fighting for it. And uh, folks, go check out the incredible site, protectpublicstrust.org. Uh, it's, uh, it's a great resource and, uh, and a great source of news. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining us. We're going to have you back on, I'm sure, soon because you're always doing very important work. But great to have you on today. Always great to be here, John. Thank you very much. As you as well. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back, folks. So glad you could join us today. Thank you for all that you're doing to support Just the News, whether it's sharing the stories, subscribing to the VIP subscriber club where you get to hang out with me for uh, one day each month and ask questions and talk about news. Uh, we're so grateful. Big thanks to Ron Dermer, and to Michael Chamberlain for their great interviews and very insightful news, newsy interviews. Uh, that's why we do this. All right, we're going to be back tomorrow with another great edition. I hope to have Tom Fitton on the show from Judicial Watch. We'll break some news for sure with that. But before we go, I always want to shout out and bring to your attention some of the very special offers that we get because we have great partnerships. We have great advertisers. We've got great sponsors, people who care about just the news, people who care about the John Solomon reports podcast. And one of them is my good friends at my Patriot supply. I could pitch these guys in any economic environment because I think what they do is important, but in a moment of historic inflation, in a moment where governments across the world are warning about food shortages, when we just saw a food shortage for young babies, the baby formula crisis that uh, the Biden administration fumbled. Uh, you know what? It is wise, smart, prudent, downright prescient to have a three-month 
uh, food supply on hand in case there was a crisis, in case something like a pandemic or something else tipped us into a more difficult time. Why not do that? My friends at My Patriot Supply, they make it so easy. You don't have to wait, and you should wait. You can save $150. You heard that number right. $150 saved on a three-month emergency food kit just by going to prepare with Solomon.com. Get a load of that. I have my, my own URL now. Prepare with Solomon. Solomon spent S-O-L-O-M-O-N.com. Prepare with Solomon.com. You're going to get $150 off a three-month emergency food kit. This kit contains enough meals for three solid months of good eating, providing you the 2,000 calories a day you need for sustenance. I bet you didn't know that, but that's how you sustain your energy, you sustain your health. You need 2,000 calories a day. These are delicious meals, good meals, um, and it's so easy to take advantage of this offer, a very special offer from our friends at My Patriot Supply. They gave us our own URL. How about that? Preparewithsolomon.com. Preparewithsolomon.com. And you'll find this special offer today. Do it. You won't be disappointed. You'll be prepared. And that's a good thing. You never want to wait until it's too late for a crisis to hit. So thank you, uh, my friends at My Patriot Supply. And folks, if you want to get that three-month emergency food kit, put it in your storage cupboards, get the peace of mind that comes with it, uh, and you're going to save 150 bucks doing so. Do it right now by going to preparewithsolomon.com. All right, folks, we're going to take uh, the rest of the day off. we got some reporting to do, some scoops to write. Uh, you have a great night. God bless you. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from justthenews.com. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner. Whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bite, you and your family need to be prepared. That's what we learned from this last pandemic, right? That's where the wellness company comes in. You know the wellness company. We have their great doctors like Dr. Peter McCullough on all the time on our shows. The wellness company and their doctors are medical professionals that you can trust. And the new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy, and most importantly, prepared. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin and z -Pak. The medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all of these life-saving medications. So you know what you're doing. From anthrax to tick bites to COVID and even the bioweapon like the plague, the wellness company's medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics on hand to keep you and your family safe from whatever the globalists throw your way. Go to www.twchealth/justnews today in order. That's twc.health/justnews and use the promo code justnews to save 10%. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events. And you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe.